0: From the University of California's California-China Climate Institute, this is Climate Dialogues with Jerry Brown. In episode one, Hal Harvey, CEO of Energy Innovation, a San Francisco-based energy and environmental policy firm, joins Institute Chair Governor Brown to talk about the energy transition. For decades, Hal has been helping the US and the world make the shift to renewable energy and more energy-efficient cities, homes, and buildings. Listen to their conversation now.
1: And uh, it's a great pleasure to talk with you, Hal. Uh, You've been at this uh, business of uh, energy and climate change for decades. And I've been watching that. I've had the pleasure of talking to you on a number of occasions. So here, our topic is climate. Climate change, uh, what we can, what we should do about it. It's appropriate that today uh, our President Biden launched a number of executive orders, uh, putting America uh, on the real path uh, to confronting honestly the threat of climate change. So let me get right uh, to the heart of the matter here. And that is, as, as I frame it, um, what are we going to do uh, about climate? When I say we, Uh, really the nations of the world Uh, what what are we up against what's our task how are we going to do it and how will China and America uh, play their respective roles and what are the obstacles and uh, how are we going to overcome them that's the big picture of our 30 minute so we're only going to take a small part of that obviously but why don't we start with uh, China and the U.S. uh, you know what's What's our task? And what are some of the obstacles?
0: Those are uh, great, great ways to start. China and the US are respectively the largest and the second largest emitters of carbon dioxide on Earth. And historically, the United States is the largest. So these two countries have both a special obligation and a special opportunity to turn things around. The, the key words that I always go back to are speed and scale we need to essentially remake the industrial economy. We need to rethink our power system, transportation, buildings, and industry. Um, And there's no policy that's going to succeed if it doesn't transform one of those sectors in the energy space. And energy is more than 80% of the problem. So you could fairly ask the question, how much of China's coal-fired power plants, for example, are gonna be replaced by wind and solar? in the next 30 years? Or symmetrically in the US, how fast will we shut down our own coal fleet? Same with transportation. We can't be running around in internal combustion engine cars powered by petroleum uh, for more than the next decade or so without busting through any reasonable climate budget and carbon budget. So I always, I think the beginnings of wisdom starts at looking at the physical stuff in the economy that burns fossil fuels and creates carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I'm asking, how fast can you turn those over? What's the clean replacement? And then emphatically, who makes the decision to cause that to happen? And when you've answered those three questions, you're at the beginnings of a real strategy.
1: Okay, well, those are two good ones. Uh, coal in China, coal in the US, and changing the fossil fuel uh, oil-based car to uh, electric or hydrogen. Uh, those are two big topics. So let me just uh, put, put this question. China is building a lot more coal right now, even though it's made this uh, commitment for a 2060 carbon neutrality. The US uh, has uh, a majority of the Democrats counting the vice president, but one of the key votes making it 50, getting to the majority is a representative from a coal state, West Virginia. So when we just taking first the the grid, the electric grid, uh, or the the, the source of power in China and America, it looks like uh, the US has got quite a problem uh, to overcome. And I don't know why China has the big problem, but they seem to be running into the same uh, type of inertia that I perceive in the United States. So where where can we look uh, for uh, steps? if you were advising Biden, how do we make a move here, recognizing that China is on the road to a lot more coal and America is talking big today, but it's facing some major political obstacles going forward?
0: Well, let's start in the United States. Um, the meta picture is to decarbonize the grid and then electrify everything. If you have a grid with no carbon dioxide in it, if you have solar wind, for example, Plugged into an electric car, you've got a decarbonized vehicle as well. So how do you get there? The first thing is to take uh, notice of some good news and see how we can extrapolate it further. Coal energy production, coal electricity production is down 50% in the last 10 years. So we need to reduce the other 50% in the next 10 years. Um, The question then becomes, what do you replace it with? If you replace it with natural gas, you're really not getting anywhere because between the carbon emissions from burning gas plus the methane leaks in natural gas, it's not radically different from coal and we need radically different from coal. So the single best policy in America would be a clean energy standard. Now you implied that um, Joe Manchin, the Senator from West Virginia could block a clean energy standard. So could any democratic Senator. Um, the, the I, I think the political move here is to recognize that coal is going away whether we love coal or hate coal. Trump loved coal and we lost half, in the last decade, half the coal. If you, if you know it's going away anyway and anybody with a ruler can figure that out, then, and you're a political leader in a coal state, then the question should be, what kind of transition can I finance? How quickly? What about environmental reclamation? Why, not, why shouldn't the federal government pay for environmental reclamation in coal destroyed landscapes? There are huge opportunities, even in healthcare with black lung disease take care of the miners that powered America for a hundred years. So I would say the transition in America is actually reasonably well underway, and it needs to be accelerated, and it cannot be accelerated by replacing coal with gas.
1: All right, you uh, described coal reclamation, and uh, that got me thinking. If the United States could take real steps at reducing, eliminating, and replacing coal, in a very fixed time period, that would certainly give us a certain amount of moral authority and maybe leverage to, to push China. Say, okay, China, you got you have your problems. We had ones very similar and we overcame it. Of course, we haven't done that yet. So I wanna explore a little bit what a coal reclamation or a coal replacement could look like. It, is this a federal government uh, infrastructure investment? Is it... Um, Uh, you know, it it seems like an industrial policy that's gonna take an enormous role for the federal government to provide uh, suitable jobs for the people that might lose and that will lose and then uh, enough stimulus going forward that there'll be an abundance of new job opportunities for people.
0: So taking those in turn, um, again, we need to recognize and respect the fact that a number of states have sacrificed their landscape and the health of their people to to power America for a century now. Um, And we cannot continue down that route. So I would would say uh, environmental reclamation of any coal mine or coal-fired power plant area can reasonably be paid for by the taxpayer. It's not that much money. The nice thing is it creates jobs in the exact states with the exact people who are no longer producing coal. Um, I would put in health clinics as well. Another idea that I think is a terrific one: we have a we have a small tax credit, one and a half cents per kilowatt hour, for um, production of wind or solar. Why why not make that two and a half cents per kilowatt hour if you're within 35 miles of an old coal-fired power plant or coal mine? Let's nudge it up a little bit so they're adv- advantaged. To to the second part of your question, Governor Brown. If we doubled the rate at which we install wind and solar countrywide, uh, we would offset all the rest of the coal by 2030. So we'd, we'd have to double it. We can't continue at the same pace we're going at, but doubling is not that impossible. And what does it require from the federal government? Solar and wind are now cheaper than coal. That's, a, that's great news, but there's a whole bunch of obstacles to deploying more solar and wind having to do with transmission access, especially, and enough transmission lines. We have to build up the infrastructure to deliver clean energy to Americans.
1: Well, transmission access, right there. You've got jobs. You have the Joe Biden uh, infrastructure jobs investment uh, idea that he's been talking about. Uh, I do think the scale of this is heroic uh, in size. But if it isn't heroic in size, it's not going to be able to even solve the problem because you're going to have coal miners saying, "Hey, where's our job?" Uh, you're going to have states saying, "Where's our economy?" But if Somehow, uh, we could go from this neoliberalism, uh, political modesty to some Rooseveltian vision, uh, where with a New Deal of serious, comprehensive investment, uh, we could make it worthwhile to get off coal. Now, let me and, and the transmission lines, and I guess all the 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 regulatory uh, software, uh, digital management that that will all take to integrate um, the intermittent kind of sources uh, to replace these more permanent uh, baseload power. So uh, with that, uh, is solar and wind is that, uh, those are our, our only two, uh, what, are there others? Uh, uh, is it a time frame question uh, or what? I mean, we, there's nuclear, there's, some people call it fusion, some people are very doubtful of that, uh, geothermal, Um, certain kinds of storage that would uh, make quite a difference in in our uh, uh, renewable energy portfolio, all of that. So uh, enlighten me a little bit on on the path forward, actually, uh, besides wind and solar, or is that it?
0: So today, wind and solar is not only competitive, but cheaper than 85% of the coal plants running in America. To build a brand new solar farm or wind farm is now cheaper than simply paying the operating costs of an existing coal plant. That's a big deal. But if we look to the near term, offshore wind is another huge deal. The winds blow offshore much more constantly and at much higher speeds. The biggest offshore wind towers are now as big as, almost as big as the Empire State Building. They're just enormous because when you're offshore, you don't have to worry about driving the blades down the windy roads and so forth. So offshore wind is the next huge opportunity. I can't, I can't emphasize enough how big it is. Uh, England is taking advantage of it already. Beyond that, it gets, it requires more technological development. Geothermal energy is essentially limitless, but it requires a way to inexpensively drill through uh, very hard rocks in order to be cost effective. So uh, that maybe could be done with lasers or some combination of razor and mechanical energy. Um, It's not there yet, Uh, it's not cost competitive yet. For solar thermal panels, um, when you were governor, of course, the biggest one was built in, Southern California, Uh, it's also not cost competitive, but it's not way out of the money yet. It could get there, I think. The longest term is what might be uh, a future for nuclear energy, fission, or fusion. Right now, nuclear energy bids are about 20 times higher than wind or solar bids. So today's commercial products simply don't compete. They need a fundamental rethink, fundamental restructuring. That costs probably $20 billion simply in R&D to introduce the small modular nuclear reactors. And what they say about fusion is it's the energy source of the future and it always will be. Um, There's a really great fusion reactor that's helping out a lot already. It's called the sun. And it's exactly the right distance from us to avoid trouble.
1: Does anyone ever think of the idea of photovoltaics in space? In the seven late seventies, that was an idea yeah. that, uh, that some people proposed. Has that been disproven as a possibility?
0: It's just the costs are ten times higher than doing it on the ground. You get uh, a little more, a little more gain because uh, you're not in the shadow at night uh, and you don't have the atmosphere to go through. But uh, you know, the we have, you know, we have the we have these things called deserts that are ideal places for solar energy right here.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, but again, there we have desert uh, animals of one kind or another that uh, compete for space. Do you think that that conflict is much of a showstopper or easily resolved?
0: Um, What I would say is set very strong ecological standards Uh, within, even with very strong standards, there's plenty of space for renewable energy. But I think the government should pre-zone so that there's um, green areas where it's fine to build renewable energy. There's red areas where you should never even think about it. And then there's yellow areas where you have a long conversation. Right now, everything's a yellow area and we have a big battle every time.
1: Well, you make it sound pretty easy, uh, <laughs> at least as a thought experiment. The politics are, are humongous. And the politics yes. are, oh, what is this gonna cost? A hundred billion? 200 billion, well, we've just blown two or 3 trillion and about to spend another trillion or two uh, responding to the virus. So government has shown that you can spend, you can mobilize and spend big sums of money. What we haven't shown, that's in response to crisis. What we haven't shown is that we can forward invest anywhere near that kind of money to deal with a problem that is not fully in front of us in a way that we can grasp. And so I would say the political challenge here is to so imagine the climate disruption that we can move forward our concerns in a way that we could generate the two trillion dollars of environmental investment that Biden is talking
0: about. So um, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think we do need to mobilize the political sentiment. There's, there's two important points though that have to go along with this. The first of all is we're buying benefits, not just climate benefits, but health benefits, conventional air pollutions benefits, jobs benefits. The benefits are fantastic for a clean energy world. The other point is that many of the changes simply require standards rather than cash. Um, And under your administration, uh, you passed Title 24 building codes, for example. What was that, um, 35 years ago? and. since then, buildings in California became almost 80% more efficient as a consequence. California passed clean car standards. The rest of the world followed them. That didn't cost us any money. Uh, you passed refrigerator standards, refrigerator efficiency standards. Refrigerators now use 80% less energy than they used to. So we can tell the utilities in America we need 80% carbon free electricity by 2030 and they should be competitive about how they get it, but <clears throat> it just doesn't have to come out of the taxpayer's pocket, there's no point.
1: All right, uh, you've told, by the way, t- Title 24, the building standards uh, was initiated. First of all, there were ideas around before I became governor in 1975. Then the Energy Commission, which was created by Ronald Reagan, the governor preceding me, uh, went into effect the day that I was inaugurated. I then set up the Energy Commission. And from that day to the time when these new energy efficiency standards went into effect, that was nine years. Okay, Mm -hmm. nine years. Uh, That's in part technical, in part bureaucratic, and quite frankly, uh, part political resistance. So this is not for the faint of heart here. And in in life said is next, next stage here uh, between now and, and 2030 get, get, <clears throat> getting 40% emissions below what they were in 1990. Tell us a little bit about where we are and how hard that's going to be.
0: I, let, me, let me say one word about the building because I can't resist. You inserted some magic in them, which is they get tighter every three years through a scientific process, scientific and economic process. So even though they were passed when you were the youngest governor in California's history, They've been getting tighter through every governor since, um, and that continuous improvement should be embedded in all of our climate legislation. So we don't have to try to use political bandwidth for every stair step of improvement. It was, a, it was a brilliant move, um, it needs to be replicated. <clears throat> so California has, I think one could argue the most comprehensive set of climate policies of anywhere in the world, except maybe Norway, and Norway has an infinity of free or low cost hydro. Uh, We have have policies for every sector. Um, All that said, and and we're on a pathway toward, but not to carbon neutral by 2050. We need to do a few more things. The recommendations I would offer are to reach 85% clean energy by 2030. So 10 years from now, 85% clean electricity on the grid. I'm confident that can be done in California where we're well along the way. Um, That's something the Public Utilities Commission or the legislature could make happen. The second thing I would do is prohibit natural gas hookups in new buildings in California. Uh, we can't afford to burn fossil fuels at scale and have a clean, have a safe climate. They don't go together. Um, and so uh, California, with the advent of heat pumps, you don't need natural gas. With the advent of induction stoves, you don't need natural gas. There's a much better way with heat pumps powered by the grid. Uh, to, to condition our buildings. Um, a, a third idea, which is more experimental is to expand the buy clean program. I think you signed that into law as well, Governor Brown, which co- commits the state to purchase its raw materials from the cleanest, I think it's the cleanest 20% or cleanest 25% of product on the market. That can be expanded to more materials. Uh, and tightened up so that the review periods are faster. And then finally, I would say the cap and trade program in California should issue fewer and fewer permits until we are on on that trajectory of zero by 2050. I'm confident we can get there. These are actually relatively modest steps compared to what we've done. I would also say finally that California has to succeed because if we cannot succeed with all our ingenuity and all our wealth and all our progressive politics, it's fair to ask who can. We need to set the example.
1: All right, well, The, the uh, you did say though, it's gonna be pretty hard to get to 2030. And let me give you an example. You mentioned cap and trade. Yeah. Uh, the the cost of carbon, the price of carbon in our current cap and trade, I think somewhere around 18, 19, $20, something in that area. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's gotta go a lot higher uh, to really get some uh, in, get, real get, in, get incentives going in the private sector. Problem is, as you said, take out the allowance. That means increase the price. Of, and we increase yep. the price, it flows through to, to people, to consumer, to politicians. Yep. And they will then jump on that and say, it's a gas tax, it's a consumer tax, it's, it's unequal. And so that's lurking out there, um, which we, 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 quite frankly, in California, have modulated the cap and trade so we have avoided the political backlash. But to make real progress, we have to have a cap and trade that bites harder. In order to do that, we need the political support, uh, not just in California, uh, nationwide. And that really gets to the uh, heart of the matter. You've laid out the technical possibility. Uh, you mentioned, for example, wind. Okay, uh, can we really get wind out in front of Santa Barbara? If it's 100 miles away, uh, those sensitive people are probably gonna complain. So we have to overcome that politically. And then it's expensive. We have to throw money at it uh, in a good sense. And we have to accept failures, mistakes, uh, political screw ups. We have to have, uh, you mentioned earlier today in the conversation, we need adults. Well, adults know, unlike children, that bad things happen to good people and we have to pick up and, and move on. So we have to be able to tolerate mistakes um, and all sorts of mishaps on the road to this transformation that's gonna require what I call the Rooseveltian level investment of this uh, carbon or uh, climate new deal. Well, having uh, done all that, uh, we, we have to get the political uh, support, uh, not yep. just for California, but you know, we have the institutions. We have the Public Utilities Commission, we have the Energy Commission, and we have a bunch of Democrats Even though a lot of them don't know what they don't know, all these things they're willing to go along because it's billed as progressive. But as you move east, you don't have that environment. And Joe Biden of himself cannot just transform the American uh, climate, the American political climate. And I don't know if you've thought about that, you're the more the energy guy, I'm the political guy, and I can tell you this looks difficult. We have to absolutely figure it out. So, I'm not putting this as a showstopper, I'm just putting this as a realistic mountain that we have to climb together.
0: And fair enough, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's, there's two parts of the answer to that. Um, one is infrastructure spending is an investment, not just a pure expenditure. I mean, your, your, your father, Governor, the first Governor Brown, was uh, famous for building the infrastructure of California. We built the transcontinental railroad, we built the land grant colleges, we developed public health Systems across the country. We built the interstate highway system. We used to do great things. We built infrastructure, and that's what made America prosperous. I mean, it's time to re stimulate that gene and get that moving again. Let me go to the next part. As you moved east, let, let's take Wyoming, which is the most coal dependent state in America. In fact, they pay for their state budget uh, uh, through an excise tax on coal. So when coal goes to zero, their state budget also plummets. Um, Wyoming is also the windiest state and it's in eastern Wyoming not the beautiful picturesque western Wyoming but eastern Wyoming which is a uh, you know empty plains. Um, They want to build the biggest wind farm in America and it's a Republican billionaire who wants to build it, Phil Anschutz. He has so far spent over a hundred million dollars and more than 10 years trying to get the permits to build that wind farm and to get the electricity transmitted to California and Nevada. If it takes uh, uh, somebody hundred million bucks and 10 years to get the permits, we lose. So there needs to be a practical partnership between developers and governments, not one that sacrifices the environment, but one that speeds up acceptable projects. Um, and I know you tried to do that by hooking our grid up legally with uh, broader, more, more states. Um, that's the kind of thing that's gonna require more oomph. The reason the governor of Wyoming wants to do this is he needs to pay bills and he needs to employ the men and women that work in the, they used to work in the coal mines and the oil fields. And they could be building that new wind farm right today if we, if we, un, if we cleared the road for them.
1: All right, and clearing that road uh, is extremely difficult as it will be uh, to really move in the direction of 2030 that uh, A, we have to set a goal that's short term and then we have to go about meeting it and it takes a mobilization far beyond uh, what california is in california uh, to to many of these uh, legislators and uh, congress people it is is a joke or it's it's the bad country it's all right? these uh, kooky kind of lefty progressives so uh, we have to be able to we uh, democrats uh, intelligent republicans business people we have to mobilize all the political will we can so that washington can really lead this country just like roosevelt did but we're not in a depression we're in a slow depression as it were a slow uh, disruption from climate let me just jump in the few minutes we have uh, over to china because i I wanted to make the point and you made it very eloquently we we can make it but we have uh, it's going to be very difficult how about china do they have an analogous uh, inertia to overcome, like we do.
0: They have a different kind of inertia. <laughs> um, I sometimes say the Chinese situation is a is a race between good and evil, and evil has a head start, but good is moving faster. And by evil, I mean the carbon intensive fuels, and good being the clean ones. So California has um, almost twice the CO two emissions as America, uh, still less per capita, half as much per capita, or less than half as much per capita, but an enormous amount. Um, and they've built their economy significantly on core industrial products like steel and cement and aluminum and pulp and paper and glass. Um, the, there's, there's some good news um, and there's some bad news and there's some strategies. The good news is the government is run by scientifically informed leaders. They recognize that Northern China is getting, uh, going through droughts. They have sandstorms in Beijing now because of desertification. And Southern China has an incredible threats from flooding. Uh, they get it. Climate change is not an abstract problem for them; it's a today problem. Um, they also have, by far, the world's largest production of electric vehicles, solar panels, and wind turbines, and they've built more than anybody else, and they build it faster than anybody else. Um, and right now, the 14th five-year plan is being drafted for China, and. Uh, It looks like it'll have a lot of very strong environmental commitments in it. The bad news is um, they have so much old industrial facility and old coal-fired power plants and uh, and coal-fired burners of for industrial equipment that the pollution levels are staggering and it's going to take time and effort to turn it around. Now China can turn things around rapidly when they want to um, and they need more encouragement, more, more help to turn it around quickly. They need to treble triple the rate at which they install wind and solar. They need to stop building coal altogether. And they need to make commitments to do that today, not 10 years from now. So this is a decision-making moment in China. There are indications they're gonna go the right way. Um, will they go far enough, fast enough? No. Will they come close or closer than we expected just recently? I think so.
1: Well, there you've laid out Uh, the great challenge. And it's compounded by the differences between China and the US. Uh, The Communist Party as a vital element of Chinese governance versus the uh, free enterprise uh, democratic, type of democratic uh, governance in the United States. So we have these differences. And then over all the other hot issues which we all know about. So we have this strong force Particularly in the Republican Party, but also in the Democratic Party, uh, to be very hostile because of these other issues uh, Taiwan, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, various forms of repression. Now, however serious, and they are serious, but however serious you rate those, they're not as serious as uh, a disruptive climate uh, getting worse and worse over the next years and decades. So the great uh, challenge here is how do we? Uh, Aligned with China at a time when the hostility to China has never been higher. In my lifetime, I've never seen so much anti Chinese expression on the part of politicians. So, whatever basis that there is, (laughs) and there is certainly a certain amount of basis there, it pales in comparison to what we have to do uh, in dealing with climate. And there is uh, the challenge for Joe Biden, uh, for Nancy Pelosi, uh, for Uh, Senator Schumer uh, to mobilize the cooperative spirit in the face of all this conflict. And with this the only issue, it would be a a tremendous challenge, but we have lots of other challenges. We have the the nuclear, we have cyber, we have poverty, we have all these nationalisms uh, that are going on in many parts of the world. So there it is, climate is a focus that as we look at it, we sense our our common uh, participation in humanity. That's what I call planetary realism. But the reality on the ground in Beijing, I think, and certainly in Washington, I know, is nationalism. Nationalist, but I don't call that realism. The only realism is planetary realism based on the perception of common vulnerability leading to common interest leading to common commitment and action. That's what we've been talking about. And in our California China Climate Institute, that's the spirit that we look forward to working, working with China, not put our heads in the sand, but open our eyes to the possibilities, some of which uh, you very eloquently pointed to. So I guess uh, we see evil, we see good. Uh, I don't wanna say optimism. I don't wanna say pessimism, but it is a time uh, for, uh, imagination and mobilization and common endeavor. So thank you very much uh, for your words and we will continue to work together.
0: Thank you, Governor Brown. It's always an honor. And uh, if, if if half the politicians in the world or a quarter of them thought the way you did and had the drive and effectiveness that you have always had, we'd be just fine. So always appreciate your leadership.
1: Thank you. And let's see if we can't make something out of that in the next few years.
0: Amen. Thanks. All right. Thanks.